On the very first week that we started our series in the Gospel of John back in the fall, I stated um, one of my goals for the series. I, I, I stated several goals and, and that list is continuing to grow and these are basically just ways that I'm praying for myself and for you, our flock, each week as I'm preparing to, to preach from the Gospel of John. But one of the things, one of the goals that I've had from the beginning is that that all of us would have an increased passion for the name of Jesus Christ as we walk through this gospel account. That we would have this insatiable hunger, this unquenchable thirst to, to, to know Christ. And, and that it would be greater than we've ever known in our lives as we walk through this study. And so I've been praying that each week that you and I will see Jesus is bigger and bigger and bigger in our lives and that our love for him would grow corresponding to that and, and would grow larger for, for Christ. And so I, I want that to characterize our lives as individuals and families and, but us as a church collectively. And so I pray that as the deer pants for water brooks that our souls would long for Jesus Christ in greater ways. And so as as that goal that I stated is not just something that I just pulled out of thin air. I think that's in line with John's aim in writing his gospel account. John John isn't writing to just to, to just kind of grow our stockpile of Jesus facts. It's not his point. He he wants us to see Jesus Christ, to believe him, to to know him, to love him, to worship him, to have life in his name. That's why John's writing. It's a it's a very personal book that's one of the things i love most and have grown to love most as we've been working our way through john and as as i've been reading ahead is is it's all those close personal encounters that jesus has with people from all walks of life and 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 all types of people so we saw last week in john 3 the, the jesus this this extended conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, and then today we're gonna we're gonna get to eavesdrop on another conversation that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman. And so, and what I want what I want you to see is just trying to think how to walk through this story. And we're gonna take a couple weeks in this story, and and we'll probably go through verse fifteen today. But what I want you to see is these aren't random encounters. That, that Jesus is intentionally relational he's he's purposely putting himself face to face with people or side by side with people he's adia said something along these words and that, that this is our responsibility to intentionally draw near to people and that's exactly what we find jesus doing and it's just it's so good for us to see and so with that in mind i, I want to just explore a few ways in which we see the the relational intentionality of jesus Christ in these in this story. And so the first one is this is there's this intentional contrast that's set up. Um, and this is in the this is coming from the writer John, who's though inspired by God in, in what he writes. And so in John three, Jesus has a conversation. In John four, Jesus has another conversation. That's not, that's the same stuff. And so the heart of the conversation, of both conversations, is the same. And what he's saying is, you can have new life in me. That's the gist of what he ends up communicating to these two people. But the people he's speaking to couldn't, could not be more different from one another. 
So this is, this is stark contrast that is intended by God for us to see in these verses. You, just some of the differences between Nicodemus and this woman. Nicodemus is named. We have a name. This woman is this woman. We, 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 we're never told her name. We don't know it. Nicodemus is a man. This woman is not a man. That's profound, I know. Um, but in that culture, this was significant. Nicodemus is well educated. He's trained at the best uh, schools of the day. This woman doesn't have the benefit of much education. Nicodemus is a Jew and he, he moves around the best social circles. This woman is a Samaritan. She, she's a person who is despised by the Jews. We'll talk more about this later. Nicodemus is known for his strict morality as a Pharisee. This woman is known for her immorality. Nicodemus is a member of the high Jewish council, the the kind of the ruling uh, authority in all things, uh, of all things Jewish. He's a powerful man. This woman has no standing at all, even in her own village. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Jesus approaches this woman at the well in broad daylight. Nicodemus seeks Jesus out. Jesus seeks out this woman at the well. There's no conversion recorded for us at the end of the conversation that he has with Nicodemus. At the end of the conversation with this woman, we'll see that many conversions are recorded. And so on and on the differences go. And that's not accidental. Again, this is intentional. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman are as different as they can be socially, politically, morally, financially, religiously, and any other way you can imagine. So for Jesus to talk with Nicodemus would have been seen as marvelous in the eyes of this people. Okay, this, this great, uh, this, this great teacher, this great man, Jesus, now he's interacting with the, the uppity up in, in, in Jewish life, and so that's a good thing, but for Jesus to talk to this woman would have been seen as scandalous. These are complete opposites. And again, all very intentional. None of it is accidental. But, but, but this is the thing. They both have one thing in common. And this one thing they have in common overshadows all of those differences and contrasts. And it's this, is that they both need Jesus. And Jesus offers himself to both of them. And so I just, just by way of application, with this first, this first intentional contrast is that there is no, there is no such thing as a Christian gene that some people have and others don't. And what I mean by that is this, is there aren't certain types of people, certain ethnicities, certain, certain kind of cultural, cultural groups that are more predisposed to Christianity, more likely to, 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 to know the Lord. God isn't, isn't looking for a stereotype. He's not looking for a segment that would be more apt to, to respond to Him. He, He loves people. He loves all kinds of people. From all stations of life. And, and we see that in this scene. That no matter how socially acceptable or unacceptable you think you are. You need Jesus. And he, and he offers himself to you. 
And you, as you look, if you're a believer, you look around you and you, and it doesn't matter how messed up the lives are of your neighbors and co-workers and family members and classmates and those people in, in the circles that God has placed you in. It doesn't matter how messed up things seem to be. They are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And conversely, no matter how how well things seem to be going for them and how moral they are and how religious they may appear to be and no matter how like you they are politically and, and on social issues and those kinds of things, nobody is beyond the need for God's grace. And so this, this, this contrast sets that up for us and it's by design. We, we need to see this. There's a second way in which we see the intentionality of Jesus here and it's in... It's in the destination. It's where he, how he moves. This intentional destination. Verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is making more disciples and baptizing more disciples than John. This is God's plan. John knew it. He wasn't surprised by this. This is what he wanted. He he must increase. I must decrease. John's intention. John lives to show that Jesus is better than he is. That's 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 a good aim for our lives to to live our lives and what we say, what we do, how we think, how we how we act to, to, in such a way that we point others to the reality that Jesus is greater than we are. And and so this is this is John's expectation. So so Jesus is making more disciples. The Pharisees hear of this now. Jesus and that's why Jesus left Judea because the Pharisees heard about this. Now does that seem a little odd to you? So what? What does Jesus care what the Pharisees Here, Um, well, let me just clarify and say one thing. Jesus isn't leaving because he's afraid of the Pharisees. This is not for fear of the Pharisees. Jesus ran away. That's not what we're what's not what's happening here. So why does he leave? Why does he care what they hear? Why, Why does he care what they think? I mean, I think there's a couple reasons. In part, I think it's because and Jesus says this throughout uh, throughout his ministry. My hour hasn't yet come. Um. That, that Jesus is in control of the timing of his suffering, of his passion. Pharisees don't get to dictate that timetable. And so, so, so it's about timing. That's part of it. I think it may also be in part because Jesus wanted to avoid anyone on the outside of his, of, of what's going on to, to think that there's some kind of division on the inside between himself and between John. And so that may be part of it as well some that the less people on the outside think there's some spirit of competition that exists between Jesus and John so that may be part of it as well but whatever the reasons I think there's something very clear and it's in verse 4 and I our brother um, with the awesome looking mustache you didn't get to see it because you're at the back but you got to check it out later it's good uh, but but Walter emphasized I appreciated his reading and I could tell he had given time to and read this passage before Look at verse 4 with me. And he had to pass through Samaria. Had to pass through Samaria. Now, quick geography lessons. I'm sorry, I'm low-tech today. There's no maps, there's no outline, nothing on the screen. 
And so you're just going to, you're stuck with my voice. And so, but just, this is, this is the geography lesson. You have Judea to the south, you have Galilee to the north, and in between you have Samaria. That's it. Lesson over. Okay, that's enough for you to know. You can look in the back of your Bible, see a map, and, and see just what I, what I said. But so, so maybe that Jesus had to pass Samaria sounds kind of boring to you. Well, of course he did. You're going to go from one end to the other. You're going to have to go in between, and that's Samaria. But this is actually quite shocking, what's said here. This isn't like our travel had to. So you're commuting to work tomorrow, and you have to take surface streets because there is a wreck on I-75 and the freeway shut down. This is so you just have to detour around. That's not what this had to is about here. Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. It wasn't the only way. In fact, it's not the normal way. It's not, it's not the normal route for a Jew to get to between Judea, Judea and, and Galilee. Any self-respecting Jew would have done anything but take that route through Samaria. Normally they'd go east across the Jordan River... Go north, up the Transjordan Highway. That's not like we think highway, but... Um, and then they would cut back, go west, and, and they'd be in Galilee. But So, so for, for most Jews, it was worth adding that extra 20 or so miles to the trip just to avoid going through Samaria. And again, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But this isn't about travel routes. This, this had to. This is about... Jesus' obedience to his Father's will. Something's, there's this compelling force in Jesus' life, and it's, it's that his food is to do the will of his Father. He has this divine impulse that he always obeys, and so he has to do this. He's acting purposefully. He's not reacting to the circumstances so that he has to take this alternate route. No, he's, he has to do the Father's will. Had to happen this way. We'll see this throughout the Gospel of John. There are things that must take place in, in, in fulfillment of the Father's will. And so he's acting purposefully. I just say, Jesus is still acting purposefully today. He, he always is. He's infinitely wise. He does everything he does on purpose, things by chance. I just. I mean, again, we, this is where the minds just begin to explode. But for you to be sitting, I'll try to put it in terms we can even begin to understand, and I don't get this, but for you to be sitting here today listening to this sermon, God was doing, let's just say, something in somebody's life 25 years ago in a way that they had no clue the effect that that would have and it would lead to something happening today, which is you sitting here listening to this sermon. God... God is sovereign. That's what we mean when we say God is sovereign. He's over those things. He does all things on purpose. When a stranger pulls up to to the, the gas pump next to you across the little island there, and you engage in a conversation with that person, God was doing things a thousand years ago in preparation for that moment. And again, we, we don't get this, and I'm not trying to say we can connect all those dots and see why this happened. And sometimes God allows us to see 
his hand is the hand of his providence and exposed. But for the most part, we, we don't see it. But we just have a God who is all wise, who is in control. He sets up these opportunities for us. He does all things with intentionality, with purpose. And, and, and these divine appointments happen every second of every day. So God, God doesn't operate by chance, by accident. He sovereignly puts people where he wants them, and then it's up to us to obey him. I'm not saying we're robots, and all right, I can't, we can't linger on this point, and I know this brings up lots of questions, in our, and, and we come to the limit of our understanding uh, pretty quick here, but we trust God and what he reveals about himself. And I tell you where it gets really difficult, at this, this reality, this doctrine of God's sovereignty, God's purpose in all things, is, is when it comes to suffering. When it comes to the hard stuff of life. Because when you're suffering, and it could be physical suffering, it could be emotional, just spiritual anguish, and uh, whatever, whatever hard stuff that comes into our lives, all we see is what's right in front of us so often. All we see is the pain, the way it feels, and it just seems like a world is closed in on us, and, and this is all there is, what I'm going through right now. And this, this is just a reminder that there's more happening. There's more happening. Um, we don't have the spiritual eyes to see the 15 million different ways God is working in our suffering. Again, I'm not saying that alleviates it and that just allows us to kind of brush it off and say, well, big deal then. You know, God's in control, so I don't, there's nothing to be sad about. That's not my point. But I just say He's always working in ways we'll never, ever know. And there's comfort in that for us. Um, Romans 8.28 is it's not just meant to be a little refrigerator magnet saying. That's not why God gave us a, a promise like that. This is eternally true. And what it says, that God, God, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things are working together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's a certainty. And so... Again, I think we see it even here, this compulsion of Jesus to do God's will. He's working purposely. God has a purpose for Jesus. He has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for this woman. We see this unfold again as we read on. Verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus arrives at this piece of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph uh, centuries earlier. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is, um, or excuse me, Jacob is giving his patriarchal blessing to his sons. And as part of that, he gives this little scrap of land to his son Joseph. And it's an important piece of land because there's this well that Jacob had dug earlier, years earlier, and it's on this piece of land. So, and just think about this. When Jesus meets this woman at this well that Jacob dug, this is some 2,000 years since Jacob dug the well. That's crazy. I mean, we had a well at our little Baraka house over here, and there's a reason that it's not being used today, because it's no good anymore. It's just sandy water, uh, the little sludge you get out of there. Uh, but, but, and, and this is what's even more crazy. It's still there today. <laughs> Some 4,000 years. You can, I've not been there, but I've, from what I read, it seems like it most likely is this well, or that's what they really have, they 
strong evidence that it's the same well. It's there today. Base of Mount Gerizim. And still providing water. Still meeting needs. So, so this is, this is, this is incredible. But in any case, Jesus is tired. He's thirsty from traveling. And when he, when he comes to this well, the end of verse six. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, I know there are different ways to count time, but I, I think the sixth hour here, I think it's noon. The most counting of time, Jewish counting of time, start at 6 a.m., six hours, 12 o'clock. So this is the hottest part of the day in this desert region. Jesus comes to this well. And, and notice, Jesus in his full humanity is tired. He's weary. He's, he's also hungry. Verse 8, his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. So he's tired, he's thirsty, he's hungry, fully man, experiencing these things. So here's Jesus, this Jew, thirsty, alone, sitting in the open by the Samaritan well in the heat of the day. It's not by chance. It's by design. God's will being worked out with Jesus here. And then we brought, we're brought finally to this intentional conversation. And we'll start it this week. We'll finish it next week. This intentional conversation. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now just a, a word on that before we go on. There, ordinarily, the women would come to the public well like this. To draw their water for the day, for washing, for drinking, for doing, cleaning utensils, bathing, all of those things. They would draw the water either early in the morning or late in the day, just before sunset. When they, not in the hottest part of the day. And, 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 and normally the women would come in a group to do this. But this woman comes in the middle of the day, which is not normal, and she comes alone. And that tells us volumes about her social status in this community. She's not going because she's an introvert. She's not, she's not going because she slept past her alarm and just missed the opportunity to go with the other women. She, she's clearly ostracized from the rest of the community, the rest of the women in her community. For her to come by herself, for her to come in the heat of the day to draw water like this. And much to her surprise, there's this stranger sitting by the well, who actually speaks to her. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And she recognizes that Jesus is a Jew. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, Many English translations, I think, miss that last part of verse 9. It's not true that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That's not, that's not it. They had some dealings with Samaritans, really many dealings with Samaritans. I mean, his disciples are in town purchasing, buying groceries. And so there were, cons- there were, there were commercial dealings and that kind of thing. But what they would not do, what they could not do was to share eating utensils or drinking vessels or that kind of thing with Samaritans because they were considered unclean. 
So the, the New English translation or the Net Bible, it's a great translation. I was talking with our brother Art Smith about this um, last Sunday. He's using it. If you, if, you, if you really enjoy the NIV, which is a very readable translation, I'm not knocking on the NIV, but this is a much more accurate translation in that same vein. All right, This is a major rabbit trail. But the New English translation, it translates it this way. For Jews use nothing in common with the Samaritans. I think that gets the real sense of it. And so, we've talked around this hostility, hostility that exists here between the Jews and the Samaritans, but let, let, me, let me just color in the picture a little clearer for you. This animosity that we are bumping up against in this story, it runs deep. It runs very, very deep. And we just read a little description of this from, from D.A. Carson, his commentary on John. He says, after the Assyrians captured Samaria which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember the kingdom divided, north Israel, south Judah. But when after the Assyrians captured Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, in 722 B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. After the exile of the southern kingdom, Judah, to Babylon, Jews returning to their homeland viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. It goes on about 400 B.C. The Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. So the Samaritans were these religious Syncretists, syncretism, you were the word sync or synchronize, we're blending together. And so they, they, they had roots in, in the true faith that God has revealed through, through His people. And so they, they held to those first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, but they rejected the Psalms, and they rejected the prophets, those, especially those, those passages that emphasized Jerusalem as being a center because they had a different worship center. But they had these true roots, but they blended that with these pagan worship practices. The syncretistic faith. And so there are these racial, uh, ethnic, moral, religious issues here that make Jews feel this extreme hatred for the Samaritans. It goes deep. Really, really deep. They're, they're, They're viewed as ceremonially unclean, racially impure, they're, they're religiously heretical. And so they're just to be avoided. Now I know it's hard for us to even conceive this kind of animosity between people in the same land. We could never know anything like this in our own nation, could we? We, we would never have two wells, two water fountains with signs above them, white, colored. I mean, again, it's here we are on the eve of MLK Day, and we we can't ignore the hypocrisy, the widespread hypocrisy, even in the church, in our own nation on these lines. And we 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 can see the images, we can read the accounts of the animosity that can that has existed in our own nation along these kinds of lines. And here we see it's that, but multiplied times ten. This Jewish Samaritan rift. And so you, you start to get a sense of this. There's another episode, maybe just real quick, that kind of just shows you the types, and this is one of many, that just kind of feeds into this, this divide 
between these peoples. There was when the, when the when the Jews return from Babylonian captivity, they're coming and they and again the temples destroyed and the walls are broken down and they got to rebuild. There were some Samaritans that offered to help, but the Jews spurned that offer. They said, "Yeah, no thanks. We don't want help from you. That's for sure." I'm summarizing, obviously. Well, this did not sit well with the Samaritans. Some of them retaliated. They 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 brought pig carcasses and threw them into the construction side of the temple as they're rebuilding, which obviously pigs are unclean. And so it brought that work to a screeching halt and there would have to be seven days of purification for this. So it's this kind of thing. It's just this hatred between these people groups. And it, it runs deep and it runs gen- it's generational, deep-seated hatred. And the feeling was mutual, both directions. So Jesus asked for her, asked her for a drink. This is, this is a centuries old taboo. And she, she balks. And, and then Jesus answered her. Verse 10, back to the text. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's saying, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be focusing on the history of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. You, you, you drop everything you have and you'd say, no, let me have a drink from you. Not just any drink, but living water. If only you knew. She's, she's again, she's confused by this. She understand. I mean, here's Jesus using this metaphor. She, she's not seeing it. She's stuck in the physical. She can't break out. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You don't even have a bucket. Um, it's normal for travelers to carry some kind of container to draw water and to carry water, and maybe Jesus and his disciples had something, but they have it in town. He, she looks at him, he's got nothing. And so he's saying, you, you don't have anything to draw water with. How are you going to get water? And where are you going to get this living water? So, so, but, but as evidenced by her next question, she does sense some, she senses some claim of superiority in the way that Jesus is speaking to her. So she asks, verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? Answer, yes. Infinitely greater. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and who drank from it himself 2,000 years earlier? As did his sons and his livestock. Well, the ball is just teed up for Jesus here. I mean, this is why he had to go through Samaria. How does Jesus answer? Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He says, in essence, I grant that Jacob was a great man and I grant that he has given this tremendous gift to you in this well that is still is still giving life some 2,000 years later. It's remarkable, but this isn't your first time to come draw water from this well and it's not going to be the last time. You drink today and you're going to be back tomorrow and you're going to drink again and the day after that, you're going to get thirsty again. Because whoever drinks from this water will thirst again. 
Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up or leaping up to eternal life. In other words, he's saying, yes, 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 ma'am, I am greater. I am greater. I'm better than Jacob. My gift is better. My water is better. My well is better. My sons and my daughters are greater, for they will they will never die. I just I just just gonna give you bullet points here. Just to note just a couple observations about this gift, about this water that Jesus gives and offers to us today. Just one, it's God's gift. See it in verse ten explicitly. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It isn't for sale. You can't work for it. It's a gift. Secondly, it's received from Christ. Verse 10 also. He would have given you living water. If you'd received it, you, you have to receive it. It's not forced upon us. It's yours for the asking. Third, you would have asked Him. Verse 10, the water of life is free for the asking. He will not refuse anyone. Who asks of him. Fourth. It's it's alive. It's, it's living. There's life here. Fifth. If you drink it. You'll never thirst again. Now I don't think that, that means. That one drink is enough. But that drink produces an eternity. Of 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 drinks. A well. that that For eternity of drinks. Once you drink it. The water will be a satisfying. Permanent part of your life. Also, the water becomes a spring. It's not a cistern that is full and it's emptied out. No, it's a spring, a fountain. Its supply is unlimited. And finally, it gives eternal life. It gives eternal life. And so, this is what I want you to do. Jesus offers this outcast, this Samaritan woman, eternal life, living water, but she doesn't really see it yet. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I don't think she's, again, understanding the fullness of what Jesus is offering her. I, it may be something as simple as this. I like this water because this bucket gets heavy and I'm tired of coming here every day. I think there's more to it. And I think it's evidenced by how Jesus responds to her in verse 16. I think it's more something like this. I hate coming here. I am so tired of having to come here and draw water. I am. I hate the glaring eyes of the women of my village as they watch me come here by myself. I feel like I have this scarlet A written across my back. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. I'm so alone. If you have water like this, give it to me. That I don't ever have to come back to this well again. And Jesus takes her there. From there. And what what becomes of this woman? What's it going to take to break through to her. I just say Jesus doesn't give up on her. 
We'll, we'll come back next week for the rest of the story. I just say to you, brothers and sisters and, and guests and anybody here this morning, you don't have to wait until next week to taste and see for yourself to believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus Christ, to receive eternal life. You may not have until next week. We don't know. Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 1, it's beautiful words of invitation. He says, come everyone who thirsts. Are you thirsty? Are you weary? Are you tired? I mean in your soul. Trying to earn favor with God. Trying to balance the scales of morality and hope that in the end it works out and that you are a good enough person for God to be pleased with your life. Are you tired of living like that? says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has money, come, buy, and eat. No money. He has no money. Come, buy, and eat. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Rest for your souls, Jesus says. You can come to him today. You can believe in Jesus Christ. You can receive eternal life. Let's pray. We thank you that there indeed is a fountain, a fountain, as the hymn writer says, filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, that whoever is plunged beneath its flood, lose all their guilty stains. We're all born with guilty stains, and we accumulate them throughout our lives, God. And yet, if we come, if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we receive the eternal life that He offers, if we drink of this living water that He offers through Himself, we can, we can know cleansing. So if there's anyone here today who hasn't been washed by Christ, doesn't know this life that we're talking about, I pray that today would be the day. They would trust you right where they're sitting. If they have questions, that they would find me, find someone else that came with, someone around them and ask. And may they know this life that you offer today. For all of us, Lord, I pray again, I pray that, that, our, that we would experience this life that you give us, this abundant life that you came to secure for us. We would experience that more this week. We would know Jesus Christ. We would see Him and believe Him more deeply and love Him more. Worship Him more, even as we sing now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.